0: back to What is California? A podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Ayersdale. On this episode, episode 10, we welcome Elaine Howell. Elaine is the California State Auditor. At least that's the title on her business card. And it's a pretty complicated job. She's got a lot of hats she wears. She, yes, audits state agencies. And she lets you know what they're doing well, what they can improve on sometimes in more strenuous and scathing terms than others we will talk about that. She is also in charge of assembling the California citizens redistricting commission, which is hard at work right now, establishing legislative boundaries for the 2022 midterms, a very big responsibility. We discussed that as well. It's a fascinating conversation. And I am so glad to bring it to you on this episode, episode 10. Did I mention it's episode 10? We are in the double digits, guys. We're in the double digits. I can't believe it. It feels like just yesterday I was getting episode one put together. I didn't really know what I was doing. Here we are, episode 10. I still don't really know what I'm doing. (laughs) Just kidding. That's a little self-effacement there. That's called self-deprecating humor. And um, that said... Uh, It it has been a very interesting learning experience. I am figuring this out as I go along. It's really not that hard. Uh, It's just a matter of finding people with unique and interesting perspectives about California uh, from whom you, dear listener, might want to hear and putting a microphone in front of that person and a computer and hitting record. And then the ones and zeros, folks, do the rest. Elaine Howell is the state auditor. She has been the state auditor since 2000, when Governor Gray Davis appointed her and she is retiring this year, she recently announced that she will step down at the end of 2021. It is the end of an era. And if you're wondering, well, why do I care about the state auditor? I mean, that sounds very dry. OK, but here's the thing. If you have a state like California, which is the fifth largest economy in the world, if it's stood alone, right? You want to have some accountability and some transparency in its governance, you know, its leaders, its its agencies, its institutions. And that is what the state auditor is there to enforce. And through audits and examinations and investigations, just, you know, routine stuff, just kind of like just looking under the hood and seeing what there is to see with a lot of these agencies, the state auditor's office can determine if California's money is being spent efficiently, if its systems are running in a way that is sustainable and transparent and above board. And the state auditor's office makes recommendations for how all of our state agencies and institutions and those who run them can do a little bit better on our behalf, the people's behalf. That's why the state auditor's office is so important. It's a nonpartisan office. Uh, Elaine Howell is a nonpartisan officer. And when she retires, there will be a successor And, you know, we're going to miss her point of view. I think once you hear what Elaine Howell has to say about the auditor and the auditor role and her time in that role, it'll give you a little more perspective on just how important this position is in California. One of the really cool things that I found out about the state auditor's office in researching before this interview, and also, of course, talking to Elaine Howell was how she and her team at the auditor's office have worked to improve the accessibility of audits. And I don't just mean like, you know, you can find them online, but really make sure they're digestible. Make sure that the language is clear. There's gonna be infographics, photos, all kinds of different stuff in those audits. Just to make sure that the people who read them and the people, again, on whose behalf these audits are conducted, really understand and can take away some vital and viable information. And the thing is, you've probably seen or heard or read about um, Elaine Howell and her team and their audits recently. The most famous are the Employment Development Department. There were three audits that were put out over the last year revealing things like how fraudsters took almost $20 billion uh, from EDD without really any um, recourse. There was also an audit about the high potential for identity theft in EDD mailings and how that wasn't fixed and other things. There was a famous audit that came out a few years ago about the University of California and its budgeting practices and how the University of California's administration, upper echelon administration, had interfered with the audit, trying to kind of keep a lid on some of its least savory and unethical practices. And so you probably have heard of these audits, among others, uh, through the phrase most commonly associated with Elaine Howell in her office, which is, quote unquote, scathing audit. If you've ever heard the phrase scathing audit in reference to the auditor's office, uh, that is what that talks about. I mean, it's just they're kind of um, unflinching, specific, concrete, data-driven, evidence-driven reports that hold Power to account. And Elaine talks about that in our interview about speaking truth to power. At the same time, Elaine Howell is not fond of the phrase scathing audit. She's not out to torch or roast or tear anybody up. It's really about accountability. And she describes how that phenomenon actually plays out in practice in her office. Uh, We don't get too technical, it's just really about the job uh, that she does the task at hand the mission and what that looks like in the day to day. And, you know, let me just tell you what it's like when you walk into the state auditor's office. So you go to the 12th floor of the U S bank building and you walk in and it's spotless. It's, it's a beautiful office. It's so nice. It's modern. It's not ostentatious, you know, it's not gilded or glitzy or glamorous. You just walk in and you check in and you sign this little book with this little, uh, you know, uh, spiral binding. And it's like this customized auditor, uh, login book. It's, it's so nice. It's so classy. And again, not ostentatious or anything. You just, anyway, you turn around, you sit down, you wait for Elaine Howell beside each chair. There is this kind of rotating tower and in those towers are copies of the audits that her office produces. You know, you walk into like a dentist's office or a doctor's office and you like get magazines, right? Like highlights for kids. No, you don't get highlights for kids. In in Elaine Howell's office, you get, you know, EDDs, poor planning and ineffective management left it unprepared to assist Californians unemployed by COVID-19 shutdowns. You get, Significant weaknesses in EDD's approach to fraud prevention have led to billions of dollars in improper benefit payments, et cetera, et cetera, among other greatest hits. And you can just sit there and casually read the audits <laughs> the way other people would read Sports Illustrated. And I I, I kind of loved it. I got to be honest. I kind of loved it. I wish it had more time uh, to read those audits out there just to have the experience of um, you know, reading audits in a waiting room. I, I will not be able to cross that off my bucket list. but. Um, The good news is I went right in and talked to Elaine Howell and got the, you know, the information I wanted straight from the source. So let's go ahead and get to that conversation now. I just want to thank you again for listening to 10 episodes of What is California? I'm so proud of this podcast. I'm so pleased by the guests. I'm so grateful for everyone who's contributed, either as an interviewee or as a listener. You've all meant something very special to me and meant something special to the growth of this show. And we're just going to keep growing. We've got a few more episodes left in season one. Then we'll take a break for the holidays. We'll be back in January. But for the meantime, you can go ahead and follow us at what California on Twitter. You can email me at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. I would love to hear from you. And you can subscribe to our free Substack newsletter that comes out every Thursday with a podcast. And it comes out every Friday with a nice roundup of cool weekend links that you can take advantage of tell you a little bit more about what's happening around the state so go ahead and have a look at those and until then here's me with elaine howell on what is california enjoy elaine howell welcome to
1: what is california so good to have you here thank you so much for inviting me this is great so uh
0: let's you know, start with your California story. Are you from okay. here originally, or did you uh, transplant here?
1: No, I'm a transplant. Um, I've lived in California longer than I lived in the, the state I was born in. I was born in Massachusetts, uh, moved out to California in 1980. So I've been out here quite a long time. Uh, graduated from college in, in Massachusetts, went to University of Massachusetts Amherst. But uh, the reason I came out to California is my brother had moved out here. My parents came out for a few visits and said, soon as you graduate college, we're heading to California. You can come with us if you want. If you don't, that's fine with us, whatever you decide to do, but we're going. Why did they they want to come here? They wanted to come here. I think my brother played it really well. He had them come out in the dead of winter in Massachusetts And, uh, he was living in the Bay area in San Francisco and took my dad golfing. My dad was a big golfer. And, uh, as soon as he had a chance to see what it would be like to live in California in the winter months, um, he fell in love with California and my other siblings were already out here. So most of the family had, had already migrated out. So it was just a matter of my parents and I coming to join the group. Got it. What's your earliest California memory? My earliest California memory is I did come out uh, and visited my brother myself when I was a senior in college. And the same thing, just I came out in semester break in January of my senior year of college, which was 1979, um, and just saw the, the beauty of California. He was living in San Francisco, so I stayed with him there. But uh, he took me to see a variety of different places in California because I was thinking about grad school out here. Uh, so went to USF and some other schools and uh, just saw the diversity and the beauty of California. It was, it was great.
0: Mm -hmm. Was there a specific uh, memory or specific part of California that really stuck with you?
1: Well, he was living in San Francisco and I grew up in a small town in, in in Massachusetts, West Springfield, which is a town of about 25, 28,000 people. And he's living in San Francisco. And that was the first real big city, even though I had been to Boston once, uh, to see San Francisco and the diversity. And it's like, wow, this is pretty incredible.
0: Since you've been here, it sounds like over 40 years, right? Mm -hmm. What about the state its people, its culture in particular have affected you. What is the biggest impact on you as a Massachusetts transplant to California?
1: I think what I was just talking about, the diversity of the state, the mm-hmm. diversity of the people, the diversity of the different cultures, the beauty of the state. I mean, how huge California is as far as, you know, you can drive all the way to Southern California. If you're doing that on the East coast, you're going through multiple states. Um, in fact, my, my father was from Virginia. So we used to go to Virginia every year uh, to visit my grandmother and, you know, we're driving through four or five, six Six different states to get to virginia and california you could drive 400 miles and you're still in california um that was part of it part of it is just again the diversity of the the landscape you can go to the ocean you can go up to tahoe and see the beauty of the mountains um this state has so much to offer and uh, the food um there it's the fresh food compared to, again, living in Massachusetts. I loved growing up in Massachusetts. I'm glad I I spent my childhood there, but California just is so diverse in so many ways. It's It's just been fantastic living here.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask also about geography too. Like what part of that diverse terrain do you find most appealing? Where do you visit the most? Where do you find yourself craving when you're not there?
1: Well, I really love the ocean. Um, we we used to go to the ocean when we lived in in Massachusetts. We'd go down to Virginia and again visit my grandmother and and spend a lot of time at the ocean. I love that. But what I've really grown to love in California is we try to go. My partner and I try to go up to Tahoe, uh, go into the mountains. She's big into camping and that sort of thing. But uh, which I you think of mountains back in Massachusetts, they're not mountains. They're like hills. There's a few (laughs) mountains here and there, but when you get into the Sierras here, it's, it's pretty fantastic. Uh, Going to Tahoe is one of our favorite things to do.
0: Great. Well, you're Mm going to have a lot more
1: time to do that
0: uh, in the future. We'll talk about Mm -hmm. your your future plans in a second, but Mm -hmm. for now, what is a one to two sentence description of Mm -hmm. your role as state auditor?
1: My role as the state auditor is to lead a diverse group of talented individuals. Our office audits all kinds of government programs, both at the state level and the local level, uh, and not just from a fiscal perspective. People think of auditors and they think of taxes or they think of finances. But uh, the vast majority of the work we do is assessing state agencies and carrying out various state programs on behalf of Californians. So it's more of a consulting type role, public policy type role. So uh, similar to how much I love California and its diversity, the diversity of the work that we do in this office is really keeps it interesting. You recently announced that you'll be retiring at the end of the year. What led to that decision? Age. <laughs> um, actually, retiring, it, it's really bittersweet. And I know a lot of people say that when they decide to retire. Um, this office, this career has been, serv- being a public servant has been a f- fabulous career. Um, I started with this office shortly after I came out to California. After I graduated, went to Cal State Sacramento, and got my master's degree in business. Um, and originally, my my career goal and plans back in those days was to work at a major university in their athletics department. I have an undergraduate degree in sport management, was an athlete all my life, just loved collegiate sports, loved being on a, a college campus, thought that would be really a lot of fun. I worked at Sac State in their athletics program, worked uh, with some counselors on eligibility, et cetera. So sports was really a huge thing for me. Um, and I tried to pursue that after I got the, the uh, master's degree in business, because when I talked to people in the sport management field, they said, college athletics, it's a big business, especially if you're going to a division one university. It's it's big money. It's a business, really. Um, so I did pursue that. But, on you know, back in those days, it was very difficult to break into that field, particularly for a female. So in speaking with my brother and basically deciding I need to get a job, <laughs> um, he talked to me about the what was then the office of the auditor general the predecessor office to the california state auditor's office um, and he said it's a great place to work high caliber folks you will learn a lot about california you you know you've been here only two or three years um and you will learn about california government And you might find an agency or you might find that you enjoy that type of work so um i applied and fortunately got the job back and uh, started in 1983 and uh Figured I'd stay two, three years and venture off to something else. And 38 years later, here I am still working at the auditor's office. Um, But as far as your question, I think I meandered a little bit, but your question related to retirement, it's, you know, it's been a long career. It's a difficult job. Um, I think it's time for me, as those before me handed the torch off to me, it's my turn to hand it off to the next generation of leadership for this organization. It's, I'm ready to, to slow down a little bit and enjoy California, enjoy uh, other areas in the United States. I really want to travel with my partner and we intend to go to a lot of national parks and do some things where I can spend some quality time and just relax a little bit. I like that you took the answer
0: in the direction you did though, because I was going to ask what about this office as you got into it and spent, you know, a couple of years, three years, then, Mm -hmm. you know, it turned into almost 40 years. What about its traditions, Mm -hmm. its work? its legacy, if that, anything, what about the office actually appealed to you to stay here and to build a career here and eventually, uh, you know, advance to the Role of state auditor? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, the great question. And I, you know, I can I can answer that in a variety of different ways. I mean, starting with the people. I mean, I, I I joined the office, didn't know anything about auditing, didn't know a lot about California. I mean, I had moved here. My brother was in San Francisco, but when I went to school, I moved here to Sacramento and lived with my sister while I was in college. Had never been to Southern California. Hadn't seen various aspects of the state. When I joined the auditor's office, when you're auditing, you go out in the field. My first. Thought it was going to Los Angeles and going into the court system and looking at um, you know penalty assessment collections for, uh, for courts. And it's just wow, this is um, a big state compared to Massachusetts. But the the reason I stayed with this organization, there is absolutely a legacy of. A few things. One is a standard of excellence that was expected of us when I joined the office and as I continued to grow and develop as a professional, um, the expectations continued to be there. And we all took pride in the work that we do. I think if you talk to people who used to work for this office, um, they will reflect on the caliber of the people they got to meet to work with. Uh, the quality of the work that we did, the impact that we make, and the pride that they felt and hopefully continue to feel as a an employee currently or a former employee of this office. Um, there's just a standard. It's just a different place than a lot of other agencies. I consider this place a family, a workplace family, and some of us have established friendships and relationships that are everlasting. Whether we continue to work here or have moved on to something else, there are people who have developed really tremendous bonds. And I think that's something really special.
0: Governor Gray Davis appointed you as the state auditor in the year 2000. So how have you made the role of the state auditor yours in that time, say, compared mm-hmm. to your predecessor or other oversight agencies in the state?
1: Sure. Well, there's there are things, absolutely, as I grew up in the organization and matured as a professional that I continued to carry with me that I learned from others. But you're absolutely right. There were things that I wanted to do with this organization um, that I felt we could do to make it a better, more effective agency, strengthen our relevance in California. So the things that I, I have done or we have done as an organization under my leadership is we never had a data analytics group um, back in the day. So we said, no, the more and more things are going to be electronic. We need to be able to do that kind of analysis. I think the other thing that we've done as an office is developing reports that are really compelling um, even though in the past they were compelling, I think even more so now. And we really talk about, you know, the importance of the issue, why the concerns need to be addressed. I think we do a better job now of crafting recommendations, not just for the agencies to deal with, but for the legislature to address. So we're really partnering with the legislature more so today than I think we have done in the past. I think our methods of communicating have changed. Certainly, you have the written report, but a lot of people don't consume their news or their information that way anymore. So we're using Twitter. Of course, Twitter didn't exist years ago. We're using that. We're using a lot of infographics. Uh, Those have been particularly effective in getting a message out to individuals that in a very short time looking at an infographic that's two three four pages at the most can understand what the issues are that we're trying to convey in a particular audit report so there's a variety of different things with respect to the product with respect to the people one distinct difference is when I grew up in the organization, I never went down to the state Capitol. I never testified as, you know, as supervisor or as a manager. And when I became state auditor, I even talked to my predecessor. He was very supportive. And I said, I don't even know what you do. I've never seen you testify. I've never been in the Capitol. I don't even know how to develop relationships with members. And so when I became state auditor, I had to learn how to do that. And develop those skills over time because staff now testify and, and we've gone through a process over several years now to give staff the opportunity and And a lot of times they say, well, geez, Elaine, we watch you testify and you're so good at it. And I said, well, why don't you take a look at some of the tapes from when I first was appointed? You'll see I wasn't so good, certainly not as good as as I am now because I've developed that skill set. But it was really great because we did. We put a training class together for our staff and what I told... Uh, the person who was going to run that class, I want you to pull some tapes. And this will tell you how long I've been the auditor. Some of them were VHS tapes. (laughs) Uh, Pull some of those tapes of when I was testifying in 2000, 2001, my first year as state auditor, and then pull some more recent ones. And people can see. You can develop the skill set and get better and better at it. Uh, So now, uh, as an office, a lot of times – I will go down there and testify for sure, but I'll bring a manager. I'll bring a supervisor. The staff go down and brief legislative staff. I don't have to be in those meetings. Out of respect for members, if a member is ever in a meeting, I will be there. But if not, I'm perfectly happy with my staff getting the opportunity to go down there and share the results. They're the experts. They worked really hard on the product. You had mentioned a moment ago about infographics and kind of adapting Mm
0: -hmm. the audit forum to the modern age, the contemporary age. And I found Mm -hmm. that really interesting because I was thinking the same thing before we spoke. I was thinking, you know, I was looking at some of these audits thinking, these are pretty accessible, you know, for the lay person. And certainly, you know, legislators, lawmakers, you know, the governor, whomever, they can look at these reports and, and, and clearly deduce what needs to be done, or at least what you think needs to be done. But for the layperson, they may look at this and just, it's over their head, you know, it's accounting. Mm-hmm. But having that accessibility changes it from accounting to accountability. Like it's a way mm-hmm. for them perhaps to recognize what needs to be done to hold government accountable. Mm-hmm. So is that kind of the approach? Do you want more of a kind of general, broad, even layperson readership
1: for, or- I guess audience for the work you're doing? Absolutely. I couldn't articulate it any better than you did. We we absolutely considered different audiences. When we put together our website, when we put together, and I'll use an example, we have a program that we're we're responsible for now. It's called Local uh, Local Government High Risk Audit Program. And basically what we decided to do initially is to assess the health of cities in California. So it's from a fiscal perspective. So as you mentioned, there's accounting terminology and there's types of analysis that my financial team did. And when we were meeting with them to develop the dashboard and explain how we were going to put information on the website, I said, we've got to have the information for various types of audiences for legislative members who are not accountants but want to understand what's going on in the cities in their districts. We want to be able to communicate the results to the average person out there who knows absolutely no knowledge about accounting but understands simple things like does the city, if you're talking about reserves, that for a lay person is, do I have enough money in the bank, my personal account, to handle an emergency, if my car breaks down or something happens in my home that I need to have repaired, that's what we're talking about. When we're talking about reserves that a city needs to have to deal with an extraordinary circumstance, like you know, pandemic is way extraordinary. But something that comes up, does that city have money in reserve to be able to deal with that situation? So you're absolutely right. Our dashboard, we we crafted it in a way that if somebody's a researcher and is has a master's degree in accounting, they can get all the raw data they want to do all kinds of analyses. But if it's a, another person in a particular city that I just want to understand, is my city healthy or not? So we tried to put that dashboard together to consider all the different audiences. One of
0: the most common characterizations we hear of your work is scathing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> right? Like yeah. in a scathing audit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Elaine
0: Howell writes or reports, et cetera, right. et cetera. Right. Um I actually googled the phrase scathing audit <laughs> and Elaine Howell together and came wow. up with almost 900 responses. <laughs>
1: wow. So
0: mm. I'm curious, how do you feel about that characterization?
1: I don't particularly like that characterization. I think there are some audits where we are pretty direct and we've identified some serious issues. But I think that term gets used too frequently, obviously, if you've had 900 some odd hits on my name and, and scathing. I mean, what our audits are intended to do is, as I've said to staff and I've spoken at legislative hearings, it's speak the truth to power. To let people know we've audited this program, we've looked at how the agency, the state agency is implementing the program and we found some significant weaknesses and it needs to be improved. Now, is our language, sometimes the tone very strong and some agencies don't like it? Um, they're Oh, you're just writing for headlines. No, what we're trying to do is write reports that are compelling, that will get somebody's interest and someone will pay attention. Um, the infographics we use are pulled from... Aspects of the audit report, language in the audit report. So if we write some compliance, well, they, you know, should have done et cetera, nobody's going to pay attention. But, you know, EDD failed to uh, improve their processes 10 years ago. And now, you know, Californians are suffering because of that. People are going to pay more attention to that. So we try to write reports that are compelling. We, I don't necessarily like the term scathing, but it seems to be used a lot.
0: You did mention the Employment Development Department, EDD, Mm -hmm. uh, a few minutes ago, Mm -hmm. and they have come under particularly sharp scrutiny from your office over the last year. And one brief stretch between November 2020 and January 2021, I think it was like 70 days or something like that, your office issued three reports Mm -hmm. targeting improper benefit payments, exposure to identity theft, and EDD's unpreparedness to respond to the spike in unemployment Mm -hmm. claims during COVID-19. If you're listening, you can check those audits out in the show notes. Uh, In the latter report in particular, the one about the unpreparedness to respond, you cited, and I quote, EDD's poor planning and ineffective management, Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: end quote. You've been at this for a while now. Have you ever seen an agency in California as troubled as this one with so many things at once affecting this many people in the state?
1: Well, I think uh, there are a lot of large state agencies that struggle to implement programs. I think the circumstances with EDD, uh, and you're right, we issued three reports very close together, uh, and that was on purpose. When the legislature came to us in September, they actually approved an emergency audit of EDD, Um, and according to their their committee rules that limits the 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 amount of money we can spend on the audit. So as we talked earlier, we had the state high risk program, um, which gives me the authority to self-initiate audit work. So what I decided to do, and it was important for us to do this, was to designate California's receipt of COVID-19 federal relief, all the billions of dollars coming into California, not just the money for EDD, but for public health, for education, et cetera, as a high-risk issue. And that gave us the authority to do audit work. So what we did when we got this emergency audit is we tied that to this state high-risk authority so that we could really delve deeply into the issues that EDD was facing. Um, because I didn't want to go to the legislature in early January of 2021 with half the answer or half the story. So we decided we would use our, our authority under the high risk program to do a very thorough audit of EDD. So the two reports that we issued in January, one was on Claims processing because that's what people were really struggling with. It's like I'm trying to get through to EDD, I can't get through the call center. I'm I'm not getting my paperwork approved. I need these unemployment benefits, et cetera, et cetera. So that was one report. The other report was on the fraud that was occurring in California because that was a significant issue. And when we issued our report in January, it was you know upwards of between ten and eleven billion dollars. And at a recent hearing uh, just last month, the director of EDD admitted it's close to $20 billion. And then hearkening back to the report you talked about as far as the November 2020, we had issued an audit in 2019 on uh, EDD's process for sending information to people who had filed for benefits. And this came out of a request from the Assembly Privacy Committee where constituents of those committee members said, I'm getting materials in the mail with my full social security number on the paper, and you can see it through the uh, the window of the envelope. So can't we do something about this? So we had issued a report in March of 19 saying to EDD, you need to truncate. You need to do something. And we gave them options for solutions and tried to cost those out and suggested to them, there's only, if you fix three forms, it's going to address 80% of the problem and we'll really mitigate the risk to people in California. Unfortunately, uh, they didn't do that. And that follow-up, the November 2020 audit that we issued, I directed staff that had worked on the previous audit, I want you to get out there, I just want you to spend a few weeks, find out where EDD is at on that, because that's going to tie to the fraud. So that's why we issued all three reports, because then we could give the legislature a full picture of what has happened And why has it happened? And you're right. The the title of the the one audit is ineffective management. Well, they made some decisions during the pandemic uh, that they felt were the best decisions for the state. Unfortunately, they were poor decisions because they decided to eliminate some of the controls in the system that would have mitigated the fraud at least some of the fraud. Um, and then there was an audit we had done 10 years ago on claims processing, looking at the call center. and we made recommendations to improve those processes and they hadn't done that. So we felt we needed to call that out uh, in that one audit report and say, you know these are issues that EDD has known about for years. and let's acknowledge that pandemic's unprecedented. But if some of this stuff had been fixed years ago, the impact on Californias wouldn't have been as severe as it was. Are there any agencies that you audit where you look at the
0: report and say, wow, this one's in great shape?
1: There are some state agencies that do really good work, and one of them your your listeners might want to not be happy about, but Franchise Tax Board. Mm-hmm. They do a really good job. Uh, we looked at an IT project with them years ago. They actually were assigned an IT project that another state agency had struggled with, and FTB did a terrific job in getting that uh, project together. I think it was a child support system where they were intercepting uh, federal, I mean, uh, state tax uh, refunds and to be able to get child support for folks. Uh, FTB is, is a, at least when we audited them years ago, was a well-functioning organization. So there are state agencies in California that do a particular good job in, in carrying out their mission.
0: You also oversaw the formation of the California Citizens Redistricting Commission, an independent group of California residents charged with redrawing state legislative districts. And I remember you talking about the application process for this back in 2019. You did Mm -hmm. some interviews and literally as we speak, Mm -hmm. the commission is at work drawing, drafting up some district boundaries for 2022. Right. Uh, high stakes, right? High stakes. High stakes stuff. How you, do you feel like the process of selecting these commission members for this round went?
1: Well, we did the process. It was great. No, I'm just <laughs> um, I, I think the uh, you know it was quite uh, a surprise to us. Let's harken back to 2008 when this initiative was on the ballot. We didn't even know we were in the initiative until it had qualified for the ballot. Uh, that we would be responsible for establishing a process to encourage Californians, independent citizens, to uh, sign up or apply to be a commissioner who would, at that point in time, it was to draw state assembly, Senate, and Board of Equalization districts. Um, and then after that initiative passed, shortly after that, there was another initiative, Prop 20, that passed that required this commission to draw congressional district lines So it's a huge responsibility for the commissioners. um, But we felt that, okay, we we were surprised that we got this responsibility because when I heard it from my chief counsel at the time, I said, oh, we're going to audit the process. And she said, no, we have to create the process. Okay, well, let's do it and let's do it well. And the team back then did a terrific job um, and just we started thinking about it as soon as we knew it qualified for the ballot, we didn't even know whether the voters were going to pass it, but we just made an assumption and started planning right away. Um, and I have to commend staff. They did a terrific job and right out the gate. I mean, we had to do it from scratch and develop regulations and develop an application process. And how are we going to meet all the requirements that were in the initiative? So we were successful and created the first commission that, that, uh, was it? established in 2010, and we knew, okay, okay, nine years later, we're going to have to do it again because you've got to get this commission started. Early, The process started early um, before that commission has to be fully formed. So we, at least this time, had some past experience in knowing what we needed to do to reach out to folks in California and educate them. People don't know about redistricting. They understand census, but they really don't understand what redistricting is and also don't really understand the impact that it has because it doesn't happen for, you know, every 10 years. So those district lines that are drawn have implications for multiple election cycles, and that could be representatives in your region. So uh, the outreach was, you know, very difficult. I mean, it's a lot of work. Uh, Margarita and and other folks in in the office here, Margarita Fernandez worked primarily with contractors that we hired to assist us and and went out there and was the face of this process uh, along with other staff in the office to really try to get the word out. Here we go again and let's get a a good applicant pool. So we have a very diverse group because that's one of the requirements. We want this commission to reflect California. We want, you know, Diversity from um, there's political diversity. There have to be five Republicans, five Democrats, and then four not affiliated with either of those two parties. But we want diversity in gender, race, ethnicity, everything, because we want it to reflect California. And I think the commission that was established this year, as well as the one that was established back in 2010, the one that was established in 2020, uh, really is reflective of California. And uh, it's hard work, and I think they found that out pretty quickly. Um, and they're currently working. On On district lines. I know we've lost one congressional district because of our census. I've been reading about that. So that's a challenge for them. But um, I think this Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission, this model, uh, they won an award back in 2010, and California is recognized as a national leader with respect to this. A uh, new process. And I think it's been very successful and hopefully will be uh, this commission will be successful as well. Is this type
0: of formation of this type of commission unique to California? Do you know of other states that do it like this?
1: I think there are other states that have what they consider independent commissions, but I don't think there's any other state that has a commission that is established the way it, it works in California, where there's outreach, there are actual citizens or individuals who apply um some independent commissions in other states are judges so they're saying it's independent because it's not legislative members drawing the district lines i think it is unique in california i know it's held as a as a model for what other states should certainly consider doing mm-hmm. of the 50 american states
0: 34 have auditors mm. and of those 34 state auditors only 10 are nonpartisan including you in your office, mm-hmm. why is it important for a state to have a nonpartisan state auditor?
1: I think that that's a huge uh, aspect of this organization non being nonpartisan means you are objective, independent, you don't have a political agenda one way or the other. Um, it makes the job difficult at times. Because there are members of the legislature that have a certain perspective uh, or they've heard from their constituents or some special interest group that wants this office to do some audit work. And if the audit doesn't come out the way they thought it would, um, you have to deal with that. But the fact that we follow very stringent standards, we go through our due diligence and, and I tell staff if, if the member thinks the answer is A and we end up saying the answer is B, I'm fine with that because that's what our job is. And that's being nonpartisan and independent and objective. But let's make sure when we meet with that member, we're able to tell he or she, this is all the analysis we did to reach the conclusion that it's not A, it's B. Um, And I think that the fact that this office is nonpartisan and, and many auditors across the country are nonpartisan, I think it's a strength because then you have the confidence of the voters and other people in the state, that this office does not have a political affiliation one way or the other. There's no agenda. Our job is to get out there, gather the evidence, do the analysis, and again, speak the truth to power. Our work is evidence-based. It's not based on any particular perspective, perception, et cetera. That that stops at the door when people come into this office. Well, do you see
0: pressure? I mean, are there people like at the proverbial door, um, Mm -hmm. whether it's partisans, lobbyists, special interest groups, legislators, lawmakers, agency heads who read your audits, see your work, and do attempt to kind of push you one way or another in, you know, a partisan direction or to kind of rethink an audit that you've recently
1: published? We have not had that experience. What I was just referring to where I I expect staff and, and I try to teach them, let's be prepared when we meet with a member, because again, he or she may think, Our conclusion should be 180 degrees different than what we concluded. I've never received pressure from a member or any administration after an audit's been published. They may not be happy, uh, but pressure to change the reports, they know better because I will tell them. This report's based on evidence. I can show you the evidence that we used to reach the conclusion we reached. I'm happy to do that, but I'm not changing the report because I know the quality control process that we go through. The standards that we have to follow are in state law. And those standards are very stringent as far as having the appropriate staff assigned to a job, providing training to staff, making sure that the evidence we use is is sufficient and competent evidence. So we are not going to reach a conclusion if the evidence doesn't tell us that's the answer.
0: How and when will your successor be chosen?
1: The, The process for selecting the state auditor is in state law. Um, the Joint Legislative Audit Committee, again, uh, has a majority of the responsibility. Uh, what happens is, and they have an announcement out there right now on the website, and I know they've advertised in a ver- variety of different places, including LinkedIn, um, for individuals to apply for the position. and then. I'm not sure what the process is that they're going to use. When I applied 21 years ago, um, the Audit Committee asked for applications and then asked us to answer some supplemental questions. Uh, The committee, a subcommittee of legislators and some legislative staff interviewed the candidates. And then ultimately, the Joint Legislative Audit Committee, as a committee, has to vote on three nominees, And those three individuals' names are sent to the governor. And typically what the audit committee will do is here are the three names and we recommend that you appoint Elaine Howell as state auditor or reappoint Elaine Howell as state auditor. So the process is primarily uh, with the Joint Legislative Audit Committee and the governor has what I would consider a ministerial role, uh, appointing. Usually, uh, he will defer and someday she will defer to uh, what the Joint Legislative Audit Committee uh, recommends as far as the individual that should be appointed state auditor. This
0: might be kind of a weird question, but do you have a favorite audit? Like one that perhaps <laughs> you like, man, I really got hold <coughs> of that one or that yielded, you know, an immediate uh, positive impact
1: or just a topic you found especially interesting to examine. Sure. there well, it's hard to pick one particular audit. Uh, the ones that you know come to mind in recent years, University of California, uh, the audit that we did of the Office of the President and their budgeting practices, et cetera. and, and the reason that one stands out is because of the interference that occurred. Um, that was significant. That is the one and only time in my tenure that I have run into a situation like that. But again, uh, I felt it was critically important to uh, be transparent about that situation and let the legislature know. And the legislature was very supportive of the state auditor's function and and really did support our office uh, when that audit came out. There was a lot of concern and questions about that. But other audits that we've done... Um, Challenging, some that I think are the most rewarding are the ones where we can personalize it so we know a situation is going to help somebody in California. And I'll just give you two examples. One is we recently did an audit of the Medi Cal program and whether or not children in the Medi Cal program are receiving tests to determine whether they've been exposed to lead. Hopefully, the results of that audit, uh, we gave some recommendations that would require the state to do a better job and, and identify kids who have been exposed and get those kids to proper treatment. Another audit that we did years ago that I felt was really... Um, A small little program, a lot of people probably aren't even aware of it. It's called Every Woman Counts. And it's another program where our state department of uh, public health at the time, we issued the report in 2010. I think they're still responsible for the program. It's a program for low income women to get screening uh, for mammography and cervical cancer screening to hopefully identify or detect cancer early so those women can get treated. And what we found when we issued that audit report was the state was spending a lot of money on contractors uh, for outreach and marketing. But these most of these women are low-income women who are maybe part of Medi-Cal programs. So what we did when we did the analysis and I asked staff, I said, let's figure out if we If we directed the state or recommended the state cut back on some of those expenditures for marketing or for non-clinical services, how many additional women could get those services? And so we did. We went in and we looked and we said, if you cut this contract in half uh, and the state steps in and does some of that work, you can provide services to 25,000, 27,000 women. And and get them those those screening uh, mammography and, and cervical cancer screening. And hopefully we may have saved somebody's life. We'll never know. But they absolutely did implement the recommendation and they were able to provide more screenings for low income women. So that's where I tell staff we may we'll never know. But we've got to, that's the passion that you have to have for the job. You helped, I guarantee you, there is somebody out there that we helped uh, because of this audit. So it's not just focusing on the process and improving services. It's doing things that are really helping people in California.
0: In your estimation, what is the biggest challenge that California faces right now? And how can that (laughs) challenge be surmounted?
1: (laughs) I'm the state auditor. I'm not. No, Um, I think there's a variety of different issues that clearly climate change is on everybody's mind. uh, And I think that's a valid issue, something that that we as a state, we as a country uh, need to really be focusing on. Um, As far as issues with respect to California, there's this such a, a distinction between people who are really affluent and doing really, really well. And those folks who are really struggling and the middle class really struggling as well. So
0: less income inequality. Yeah, basically. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Yes. Yeah. yeah. In your dealings and conversations
0: with folks outside of California, what do you find they misunderstand
1: the most? About the state that we're gonna like break off and go in the ocean because of an earthquake. I mean, I have friends and family uh, that live on the East Coast, and they just think California is crazy and this place that's out of control and you know too many restrictions and and you know my sister and I we went back last. Uh, summer unfortunately one of my family members passed away but we we talked with cousins and and friends and they just said oh you guys out there you're crazy and it's like it's a wonderful place to live i think it's it's kind of crazy because some of the people on the east coast that you know we're friends and family with are afraid to come to california it's like it's a beautiful state really there's so many yeah because they just it's a different world Really? It's a different world. It's so interesting. Yeah. They're afraid. The freeways, because I, you know, I have to be honest, I went back east and, and I'm driving on the freeway and it's like, geez, there's only like three lanes. I need the four or five <laughs> lanes <laughs> so I can get going, you know? And they're like, oh my God, I can't even imagine that much. There's bumper to bumper traffic everywhere. And it's just the lifestyle is, it's horrible. It's got to be so stressful to live in California. And it's like, there are times it's stressful, but there are other times where I wouldn't trade it for the world. Mm-hmm. I, I, not at all.
0: We always end with the same question for our guests: Who is your favorite Californian
1: pastor, present, and why? Do I have to pick just one? No, um, but I, one of my favorite all-time Californians is Ansel Adams. I love his work. I have I have posters. I don't have any originals, of course. Um, I think his work is fabulous as far as um, the photography and the conservation, uh, you know, efforts that he uh embarked in years ago and just bringing the beauty of the state uh he's one of my favorites the other i have to say is uh ted williams because i'm a big red sox fan carly strumsky was my favorite player but he's not a native californian Mm -mm. but my brother uh is a big red sox fan ted williams was his favorite and i i am passionate about baseball and ted williams um you know you talk about all the analytics and all the things that players have available to them today and one gift I asked for for Christmas one year was Ted Williams' book. Uh, it's called The Science of Hitting. I don't know if you ever heard oh, of it. Oh, it's a classic. Sure. And it's a fabulous book. And he was he was so talented, but he was so far ahead of his time with the science of hitting. People think about that now and talk about it. And you watch a game and you see all the, the graphics that they have on the screen. And, and he thought about that stuff years ago. So he was... He was just a, a really special player. Yeah, so. for folks
0: listening at home, Ted Williams was the last baseball player to hit 400 and the pride of San Diego. That's right, San Diego, California. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. cool. Yeah. Well, that's a great choice. Those are both great choices. Elaine Hell, thank you so much for being with us on What Is California, it's been great having you. It's been a pleasure, thank you so much. And that is the show. Thank you very much to Elaine Howell, California State Auditor, for appearing on What is California. Thank you to Margarita Fernandez for helping us with the scheduling on this. And it was great to talk to Ms. Howell at the Office of the State Auditor. And uh, it's just nice to be around people again. And it's nice to be around people who are very good at their jobs and nice to boot. Best wishes to Elaine Howell in her next chapter. She still has a little bit of time left in her role. So uh, if there's anything you want audited. By Elaine Howell before she signs off. Don't dally. Get those requests in now. Actually, that's a joke. Please don't send your requests. She's a busy woman. What is California is produced, edited, and hosted by me, Stu Ben Ayersdale. That theme music is by Sound Supreme. You can find us on Twitter, follow us at What California. You can subscribe to our free Substack newsletter at what is That will get you the podcast in your inbox every Thursday morning. It'll get you a free roundup of cool weekend links, weekend reads, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Things you need to know about California every Friday. You can support what is California on Patreon at patreon.com/slash what is California. If you want to chip in a few shekels to help us keep the cloud servers running and our headquarters cat fed, meow. You can email me. I would love to hear from you at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. Please, please, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked What Is California, I would love it if you rated and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us. That is it for episode 10. Holy smokes. I feel so old. Anyway, have a great week. Happy Veterans Day. And remember, until next time, as always, keep your eye on the bear.